Well, good evening. I'm Charlie Hayward. I'm the president of Little Brown and Company. I'm going to be your moderator tonight, break up the fight, steer everyone clear through some very interesting conversation. Um, I want to welcome all of you to the sixth annual Penn AAP Symposium, which is entitled Making It in the Mainstream, Writers Who Reached a Larger Audience and How They Did It. This evening, five writers and their publishers or editors have come together to discuss the elements involved and creating a successful book and to demonstrate that, in fact, writers and publishers do work together to the same end. That is the successful, widely read book. Um, this symposium is sponsored by the AAP and the Penn American Center in celebration of National Book Week, America's annual celebration of writing, books, and reading. I would like to extend a special thanks to all the members of the AAP Penn Liaison Committee because I think they've truly assembled a very special group of writers and publishers, and I think we're in for quite an entertaining evening. Um, before we start with the um, actual discussion and the questions, I'd like to introduce each of the members of the panel, and I'm going to start right here on my right and go all the way down to the end, if you would. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Terry McMillan. Terry was born in Port Huron, Michigan. She received her BA in journalism from the University of California at Berkeley and attended the MFA film program at Columbia University. Her first novel, Mama, was published in January 1987 by Houghton Mifflin and in paperback by Washington Square Press. Mama received an American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation. Terry's second novel, Disappearing Acts, was published by Viking in August of 1989 and in paperback by Washington Square Press. Her new novel, Waiting to Exhale, will be published in uh, hardcover by Viking in June of this year. Uh, Ms. McMillan has been awarded a 1988 National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Literature, a 1986 New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, and the Doubleday Columbia University Literary Fellowship. She's been a guest columnist for the New York Times, hers column, and has reviewed books for the New York Times Book Review, the Atlanta Constitution, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. She's been a three-time fellow at, y at the Yaddo Artist Colony in the McDowell Colony. Ms. McMillan was a visiting professor at the University of Wyoming, where she taught creative writing. Most recently, she taught in the MFA Creative Writing Program at the University of Arizona in Tucson. She now lives outside of San Francisco, California. Michael Jacobs. Michael became president of Viking Penguin, a division of Penguin USA, last August, having previously served as senior vice president of sales and marketing for Penguin USA. Prior to that, he held the position of Vice President, Sales and Marketing of Viking Penguin since June of 1988. Michael's tenure with the company dates back to December of 1980, when he joined Viking Penguin as a sales representative for the Pacific Northwest, based in Seattle, Washington. P.J. O'Rourke was born in 1947 in Toledo, Ohio. He attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and received a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to attend the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University, where he graduated with an MA in 1970. In the early 70s, 
O'Rourke wrote for and edited various, quote, underground publications and published two books of poetry. He was hired by the National Lampoon in 1973, becoming manager, managing editor in 1975 and editor-in-chief in 1978. <clears throat> While at Lampoon, he co-wrote with Doug Kenny the National Lampoon 1964 yearbook parody and with John Hughes, the National Lampoon Sunday newspaper parody. After leaving the Lampoon in 1981, O'Rourke worked as a freelance writer, publishing articles in the Rolling Stone, Car and Driver, American Spectator, Playboy, Esquire, Vanity Fair, The New Republic, The New York Times Book Review, and Harper's, as well as other magazines. O'Rourke is the author of five books, of which, of which Parliament of Horrors, Modern Manners, Republican Party Reptile, and Holidays in Hell are all available from Atlantic Monthly Press. He is currently the Foreign Affairs Desk Chief for Rolling Stone. Morgan Entrican attended Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, graduating with a BA in English and Art History. In the summer of 1977, he attended the Publishing Procedures course at Harvard University. Since 1977, he has lived in New York and worked in book publishing. As an editor at Delacorte Press, he worked with such writers as Kurt Vonnegut, Jim Harrison, Jane Ann Phillips, and Craig Nova. As a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, he worked with Brad Easton Ellis, Richard Ford, among others. <clears throat> in 1986, Morgan Entrican began an imprint at the Atlantic Monthly Press. Among the authors he has published are George Plimpton, P.J. O'Rourke, Cynthia Heimel, and the, 19, excuse me, and the 1990 National Book Award winner, Ron Chernow. In August 1991, Morgan acquired the Atlantic Monthly Press with a group of investors and is currently president and publisher at Atlantic Monthly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mary Higgins Clark is one of America's best-selling writers and is known for creating nightmarish situations that lie just beneath the surface of ordinary life. Her novel, All Around Town, uh, which will be published later on this year, is a spellbinding tale of kidnapping, multiple personality, and murder. A terrifying twist is a, excuse me, a terrifying quick twist at the climax makes this Mary's most gripping tale of psychological suspense. Mary Higgins Clark is also the author of numerous bestsellers, including Where Are the Children, The Cradle Will Fall, A Cry in the Night, Loves Music, Loves to Dance, and many others, all published by Simon and Schuster. Mary was born in New York and grew up in the Bronx. Uh, her Irish descent of Irish descent, she considers her heritage to be an important influence on her writing. After a successful working career and raising a family of five, Mary decided she was going to catch up on her education. In 1974, she entered Fordham University at Lincoln Center and graduated summa cum laude in 1979 with a BA in philosophy. In May 1988, she received two honorary doctorates. She also received the Women of Achievement Award from the Federation of Women's Club in New Jersey. In 1980, she was awarded the Grand Prix de Literature of France. She was the 1987 president of the Mystery Writers of America and chairman of the International Crime Congress held in New York in May of 1988. Mary is an active member of the Literacy Volunteers. Jack McEwen joined Simon & Schuster as vice president and publisher of the Trade Division in July of 1988. In this capacity, Jack oversees trade sales, subsidiary rights, publicity, promotion, advertising, and art and design for the division. Jack joined Simon & Schuster from Atlantic Monthly Press, where he was executive vice president and associate publisher. Prior to that, he worked for eight years at Random House, where he served as director of operations, 
Profit and Planning Coordinator, and Senior Financial Analyst in the Adult Trade Division. He began his publishing career at GP Putnam's in the editorial department and held a position in financial analysis at Doubleday. He is a 1974 graduate of the University of Chicago, where he received a bachelor's degree in English and English literature. Jack also has received an MBA in finance and marketing from Columbia University's Graduate School of Business in 1979. Pardon me for one second, if you would, please. Thanks. Dominic Dunn. Throughout his life and in his work as a journalist and a novelist, Dominic Dunn has been on intimate terms with the powerful, the privileged, the wealthy, and the fascinating. His 1985 novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, which was loosely based on a celebrated society shooting that occurred on Long Island in the 50s, became an international bestseller. His most recent bestselling novel, An Inconvenient Woman, is a riveting tale of Los Angeles high society, power, justice, and injustice. As a contributing editor of Vanity Fair since 1984, Dunn has written revealing pieces on some of the world's most fascinating people, including Imelda Marcos, Robert Maplethorpe, Elizabeth Taylor, Klaus von Bülow, Phyllis McGuire, Jane Wyman, and many more. He's also written about the famous social ladies of Palm Beach, the New York, New York smart set favorite restaurant Mortimer's, and the fight to control the Beverly Hills Hotel. Dominic was born in Hartford, Connecticut, the second of six children of a prominent Irish Catholic family. Dunn was a student at the Canterbury School in New Milford, Connecticut when he was drafted during World War II. He was awarded a Bronze Star at 18 for saving the life of a wounded soldier during the Battle of the Bulge. After the war, he attended Williams College and graduated in 1949 with a degree in liberal arts. With a BA in hand, he headed straight for New York where he launched a long and successful career in film and television. In the late 1970s, Dunn decided to move on. For some time, he had contemplated writing and made several attempts at film scripts, <coughs> excuse me, all of which <coughs> came to naught. Abandoning Hollywood entirely, he lived for six months in a cabin in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon and began to work on his first novel. He moved to New York in 1980 to finish that novel and embark on a new career. Uh, Mr. Dunn has authored The Winners, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, Fatal Charms, a collection of Dunn's Vanity Fair pieces, People Like Us, all of which are available from Crown Publishers. Betty A. Prashker is Executive Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of the Crown Publishing Group, where she worked for the last 10 years. Prior to that, she was Vice President and Associate Publisher of Doubleday and Company Incorporated. She has worked with Dominic Dunn on all of his books, including his most recent collection of Vanity Fair pieces, The Mansions of Limbo. She's looking forward to reading the manuscript of his new novel, A Season in Purgatory. Ann River Siddons was born in Fairborn, Georgia, Fairburn, Georgia, excuse me, where her family has lived for six generations. She attended Auburn University where she studied commercial art and was an editor and columnist for the Auburn Plainsman. After graduation, she worked in Atlanta in advertising and in 1964 became one of the first senior editors for Atlanta Magazine. Ms. Siddons turned to full-time writing in 1976. Her first book of essays, John Chancellor Makes Me Cry, was acclaimed by Larry McMurtry as a witty and thoughtful book. Her first four novels, Heartbreak Hotel, The House Next Door, Fox's Earth, and Home Place, made her a reputation as one of the South and America's foremost storytellers. James Dickey has said of her writing that people are so real that one expects to meet them in the street, particularly if that street is in the South. Pat Conroy says of her work, Anne breaks your heart, knocks your socks off, and writes with such lyrical beauty that you will want to read it aloud to everyone you ever loved. 
Peachtree Road, Ms. Siddons' auspicious Harper debut, made the New York Times bestseller list as well as garnering still more enthusiastic reviews from coast to coast. Publishers Weekly called it an absorbing page turner, a compulsively readable narrative. Outer Banks was successfully published in August 1991 and immediately made the New York Times bestseller list. <coughs> Excuse me. Her novel Colony will be published by HarperCollins in July of 1992. Lawrence P. Ashmead, Vice President and Executive Editor at HarperCollins, began his publishing career in 1960 at Doubleday with mentors Ken McCormick, McCormick excuse me, and Lee Baker. After 15 years, he moved to Simon & Schuster in 1977 to J.P. Lippincott, which was bought by Harper in 1979. Mr. Ashmead first noticed Ann River Siddons' essays in The Atlantic Magazine in the late 60s and early 70s. She published her first novel with him in 1972 for Simon & Schuster. Mr. Ashmead and Ms. Siddons were reunited at HarperCollins with Home Plate Home Place and then Peachtree Road, King's Oak, Outer Banks, and the, and the forthcoming colony. A very distinguished panel indeed. Now just briefly to explain the format, we have uh, compiled a series of questions that I'm going to read and these questions will be fielded um, in sort of random order um, by the panelists, or not random order actually, we've actually pre-decided the order so I I'm really don't need to tell you that at all. Um, <laughs> truth in advertising. In any case, we're going to go through a, a series of six or seven questions, which I think are very provocative. I think you'll find that people have different points of view. But the whole emphasis here will, will really be how, how did uh, the publisher work with the writer in trying to reach a broader uh, audience. So question one goes as following. To what extent were editorial considerations a factor in your works reaching a larger audience? And I'm going to ask uh, Terry McMillan to handle the first question, if she would, please. Right here, right? Right there. Um, well, <clears throat> forgive me. I just woke up. Um, I think uh, my anth the anthology that I compiled and edited um, was basically about contemporary African-American write, fiction writers. And one of the things that was of concern to myself, and I guess it ended up being of concern to, to Penguin also, um, was how, how in fact would we appeal to a larger audience. And I think one of the things that we really did take into consideration was the fact that it hadn't, there hadn't been an anthology of African-American writers in, at that time, 17 years. And the ones that had appeared prior to um, this one were sort of um, more oriented towards the 60s. And I thought that they didn't necessarily, they, they were sort of outdated. They were fine for the times, but our lives and experiences had changed. And so when I made the proposal to Viking Penguin, they tended to agree um, that there are a lot of new African American slash, and I would use black to make it simple. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of new black young writers on the scene today, and in addition to a lot of already established writers. So um, our feeling and, and my feeling was that if there was a way to to house them together. Um, that it might appeal to not just um, black writers, but 
a reading audience in general who, for the most part, may up to that point have only been familiar with a small number of us. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who are, for the most part, familiar with, you know, Ishmael Reed, John Wyden, Tony Morrison, Alice Walker, Gloria Naylor. You know, a lot of people think that's, you know, that that's all that's out here. And we ended up with 57 writers. Um, I got over 200 submissions, um, which is a lot of writers that a lot of people don't, didn't even realize, I didn't even know, uh, were coming out of the closet. So I think um, all of that helped, you know, trying to, to fuse or put together um, new voices, voices that hadn't uh, heretofore not been seen or heard, um, e emerging writers, writers who may or may not have had one book published or published by a small press that for whatever reason didn't get the distribution that it may or may not have deserved. Um, and so their work wasn't very, very accessible. And then writers who, had, who were established. So I figured if you put them all together, you know, it may have a larger and a wider appeal. And I think, to some degree, it worked. I would say it worked very well. Michael, could you give us the publisher's perspective on that? Well, I, I can only sort of reiterate what, what Terry said about the fact that this was the first anthology of African-American writers that had been published in almost 20 years. I remember when this book was uh, uh, brought up at an editorial meeting when we were still at 23rd Street, and Dawn Safarian, who's the editor of the book and in the audience today, and I think she got a lot of credit for this collection, brought it up that it was a unanimous uh, consent around the table that uh, not only was this book extremely saleable, but uh, it would reach a very, very large market, and not just the market among uh, black or African-American readers. That's uh, obviously proved to be true. It was a very easy book for us to position from a marketing point of view and for us to sell. Uh, one of the things that we do at Penguin, which I think makes us uh, somewhat unique from some other publishers, is we have a very strong academic marketing department. We knew that the book, once it got out there, uh, would establish itself and that the book would uh, be adopted by uh, uh, many, many of our university professors. That's turned out to be true. When we went out with this book, I think we uh, announced uh, about 35,000 copy first printing. Our initial orders in the book uh, weren't nearly that, but uh, our marketing director, Marsha Birch, uh, encouraged me to, uh, to do a printing of uh, somewhere between 30 and 35, even though we advanced about half of that and said to me, I guarantee that within two months we will sell out this initial first printing of this book and we'll be back to press. That uh, turned out to be true. We have actually gone back to press five times in this book. We have 100,000 copies in print. It was published in October of 1990. So I think you can see, and it's, it's selling at a pace, uh, just to give you, uh, those of you in the audience who work in publishing, some idea, uh, a pace of about 35,000 copies a year, which is pretty extraordinary for any book. We consciously priced this book as well in our initial first printing at a price much under what it was worth, we thought. We priced it at $10.95, and actually Joyce Carol Oates, who reviewed the book on the front page of the Washington Post, commented about the fact that she thought the book was a bargain at, uh, at that price. And that was a very conscious decision we had to get the book out there and established, and we have then since uh, raised the price a couple times. <laughs> We're not that stupid. Uh, but in any case, um, I think that uh, what Terry said before, the fact that the editorial considerations, the fact that there were uh, established, uh, emerging, and unpublished writers in this book, uh, her editorial eye and the fact that there was a, a niche uh, to be filled there, really uh, did our work for us. And we have a very promotable author. She went on a six-city author tour. 
Uh, the book was reviewed widely. She did readings. She organized some group readings along with our publicity department. And I think it's important to note that this book never got reviewed in the New York Times book review Thank to this you. day. <laughs> uh, even though there was a lot of new material, a lot of unpublished material, and uh, uh, I think it just goes to show that the New York Times book review doesn't always know what it's doing. And uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, dictate what sells and what doesn't sell. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, the, the book grew and success grew from, from Terry's editorial eye and Don's keen eye that this was, uh, was an anthology that needed to be done and that we had somebody editing it who was uh, herself a, a really emerging, emerging writer. Okay, thank you, Terry and Michael. Uh, moving on to question two. And this question has a few sentences to it, actually. It said, did you have a clear sense that your publisher had a plan to manage your career to build your audience with each new publication? Further, did your hardcover and paperback publishers cooperate in building your audience? And I'd like to ask PJ O'Rourke to uh, take this question on if I could. Well, it makes being an author sound a lot like professional wrestling when you, when you <laughs> ask that. <laughs> and the answer was yes, absolutely. I was going to come out in a hood and a cape and, you know. And <laughs> well, Morgan and I have known each other for a long time. And when we went into business together as, as writer and publisher, uh, we sat down uh, and over many drinks, as is the tradition of the publishing business, um, <laughs> uh, hammered out a plan. Uh, how many, when, how, when was that, Morgan? Uh, 86. 86 or so, which we, which we stuck to and which has apparently worked. And uh, in 86, uh, I was uh, mostly a freelance writer, and I had uh, 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 the Lampoon, National Lampoon, was still fresh, at least in some people's minds, uh, as, as a reasonably interesting publication, which I'm afraid it, it, it really isn't anymore. Um, and so I had a certain, and I was also out on the lecture circuit, and so I had a certain following, not a very big one, uh, and it was mostly collegiate, and they, they didn't have a lot of money. So we started out with a trade paperback, and then we went to a hardback collection of pieces that I had done mostly for Rolling Stone so that I could build on the constituency uh, uh, of the Rolling Stone readers. And Rolling Stone's a pretty good size magazine, um, so a, a, a million or so circulation. And uh, uh, from there, uh, we, we, we reprinted an earlier book that I did, um, uh, you know, sort of trying to build on those previous sales. And never printing too many of these books, uh, Morgan had a very cautious, uh, a very conservative philosophy about this. The idea was to leave the bookstores and the salesmen and the distributors wanting a little more rather than trying to shove an enormous number of books down their throat. Um, I was doing various other things besides writing books uh, to make a living, and so I was not desperate for cash. Uh, oh, well, I'm, I'm a writer, so I was always desperate for cash, of course, but I, mean, I wasn't double desperate. And so we were able to take a slow approach. And then quite intentionally, uh, not to step on question number one, but I mean quite intentionally, we then decided to do a book that was more of a book and, uh, and that would reach out to a broader audience in its editorial content. And by then we felt we had built up um, a constituency. And see, one of the things that, that I think is very important to understand about being a, a writing for a living in uh, America is that how shockingly few readers there are in this country. Now, it is very nice to be on the bestseller list. I am enormously pleased by it. But I'm also a little ashamed for my country when I see how few book sales it takes to put someone on the bestseller, especially the hardback uh, uh, bestseller list. Uh, it's really, I don't know, I'm sure it varies a lot depending on who else is on the list, but I think at any given moment, uh, what would you say? How many 
30 or 40,000. 40, in a nation of 250 million people, a product selling for usually less than 20 bucks, it takes only 30,000, 40,000 sales. You, cars, there are cars that sell a lot more than that. <laughs> and so, American cars. <laughs> that sell more than that. So it, it's disturbing. Because there are not enough readers for an average writer to make a living from, uh, it is necessary for writers to market themselves. And it is usually, you usually have to have a couple of legs to stand on, both financially and as a way of getting yourself in front of the public so that people who aren't going to read your book will buy it. You know, because in order to make a decent living, in order to get on the bestseller list, you're going to have to sell your book, especially if you're a nonfiction writer to people who are going to let it sit there on the coffee table next to a brief history of time. <laughs> not going to read it. <laughs> no. um, in my own case, I was a magazine writer, and so I had my face in front of the public, and still do to a certain extent, uh, 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 as a magazine writer. I was on the college lecture circuit, something I'd started doing when I was an editor at National Lampoon, in which when I left Lampoon, um, uh, but I went out and got an independent lecture agency. And I had a couple kind of funny or allegedly funny um, speeches, uh, uh, which I would give. And uh, they would book me on these, these, these dreadful tours where you would get to see every college camp, or every, not every good college campus, you get to see every state teacher's college in America you know, uh, in, uh, in the course of a week. And uh, so I was doing that, which is great. I think, you know, once somebody has shaken your hand, they'll buy your book. You know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like being a politician. And, uh, and then there was book writing, so I had three legs uh, uh, to stand on. I think television works this way for some authors uh, and, and various other uh, uh, ways of a crime. You can get convicted of a, a major crime, and <laughs> that will do it. You know. So anyway, yes, we had a plan. We had a plan. We stuck to it, and uh, I think it worked. And I'll let Morgan answer the other half of this question because I haven't got the slightest idea how our paperback publishers cooperated or if they did or... Well, that half of the question is really not that relevant because I publish a lot of your books in paperback. Shows oh. <laughs> <laughs> what I know. It's the same person. Uh, but I, the only thing that I would add is that there's a thing that I think that was a lot of the pressure for, uh, well, because of the high advances that, that the agents and authors need and demand, because of it, therefore the publishers need the revenues, that they tend to overpublish a little bit. And I think it was a, a very key part of what PJ said is that after we had had some initial success, uh, I sat with him and I said, look, we could sell another ten or 15,000 copies of this, maybe, but if we try it and we fail, we will have burned the booksellers and we will have destroyed a kind of gradual building program that we've spent years for. And I said, you know, you make this decision with me. Uh, and together, you know, he decided, as I advised him to, to let's be a little bit more conservative. And then when we know, when we, when we have a book that we really think uh, uh, can, can break through, we take a big position on that. And I think that, that that was one of the reasons that we've had such success, such success building PJ. I mean, the example was Modern Manners, which was a book that would have been published in 1980 that I had acquired for Dell. And then PJ and I, it had gone out of print, so PJ and I spent a weekend changing the, it's a spoof of an etiquette book, we changed the uh, Jimmy Carter jokes to Donald Trump jokes, updating <laughs> it, and uh, reissued it, and, and uh, it worked. And so, but we didn't overpublish it. I think the only other thing that, that I could say about this is that one of the reasons that I was able to do this is because of the relationship I have with PJ that has been sustained over not just one or two titles, but over 
really four or five books This now. is really important, I think, that yeah. uh, people don't stay with the same publisher yeah. anymore. And, and the fact that I had one or two books under contract that we could plan, that we were, you know, we went at it in, as partners rather than in an adversarial way, uh, really helped a lot because that allowed me to make some of these decisions because I wasn't being gouged by his agent for the highest amount of money for each book, uh, and also I, I could have the confidence that the... Uh, well, we gouged him as well as we could. But that the money, that, that the resources that I was putting behind him at a given moment would, would maybe pay off down, down the road. So I think that that partnership aspect of it uh, really made a lot of sense. It also was a way that, uh, something that I brought to bear in all the right sales we've done in foreign countries, I mean, of building him. I've tried to take that same philosophy abroad, and that's been critical to it, too. We've, we've made him a bestseller in England, uh, now in Spain, and are working on breaking through into uh, Japan and some of the other countries. Well, when I would talk to my agent about what we were doing, uh, we, we would, and we made a conscious decision, my agent and I, not to put Morgan in a high-risk situation where he would absolutely have to to have sort of uh, Nancy Reagan bio-sized sales in order to make back what he had advanced me, and advance being only an advance. But am I right in thinking that practically all of the of the writers up here have been with the same publisher, or, and is that perhaps one of the reasons that we're up here, is having made <laughs> some, no, I mean one of the reasons that we made some breakouts. Yes. <laughs> I think you're up here because you're successfully published authors, and I think it is no coincidence that uh, the opportunity to build a publishing relationship yeah. requires more than one or two books. I'd like to move on, if we could, and, and uh, have Mary Higgins Clark uh, uh, respond to this question, if we could. Thank you. The same question? When, if we could. Oh, okay, sure. Well, it is a it is a marriage between the two. You know, the uh, the author and the publisher. You are together, and you have the same goal, and that is to sell books and to have the booksellers like you and to have the readers like you. And I certainly was uh, enormously anxious to be cooperative because Where Are the Children was my first suspense book. I had written a book about George Washington, which was read by the favored few, published as a whispering campaign, and remained it as it came off the press. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really hoping that this time this book might slither into a few homes. And. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yes, I think that the, the authors should be cooperative because let's face it, there are some 50,000 books published every year. And to have your book be one of the ones that sells to the point that, that sells to the point that you might someday, as I thank God can do now, not write first thing in the morning and then go into an office. So you, you should cooperate. And I believe that the cooperation starts right at the, the hometown bookstore and goes right around. I mean, I do a lot of speaking. From day one, I really have. I sign at a lot of bookstores, not just the big chains, because the independents can sell an awful lot of books, and they're very grateful. And you start to develop an audience. You know, when people will come in and say, I read the book, and oh, I'll get one for Aunt Millie as well, you're developing a relationship that I think is desperately important. And you don't just have to go on the Today Show or on Good Morning America. There are plenty of television shows that are much smaller that are looking for guests. And you can get on them. I think the big thing when you have fiction is that they don't want you to go on and just sell your book. What you have to do or should do is to tie <coughs> it in in some way so that there is a broader reason to talk about the book. For example, when I did one on 
uh, in vitro fertilization. They had just had the first uh, child born out uh, in vitro, the baby Louise in England. So it wasn't just saying, buy this book, you'll like it. You're talking about the ramifications of what will it mean legally? What, what will surrogate mothers mean? What will host mothers mean? And if you can tie your book, if you're a fiction writer, into something that makes the host have a reason to do more than say, I love the book, and you must buy it, you're doing yourself a grave and good favor, I assure you. But uh, libraries, that's important to go to. Librarians can be your very best friends. They order a lot of books. I speak at local libraries. I've spoken now uh, to the National uh, Association at state libraries. You have a crowd like this, and they're all librarians, and okay. you're talking about your book and why people might like it. They recommend. They say to someone, someone comes in and says, what shall I read? And so if they recommend your book, then the next time they come, they may get out another book or they may decide to buy the next one or buy it as a present. So I think it's very, very important, and I don't think you should ever take your reader for granted because there are new voices coming up all the time. There are many books being published, and it certainly is worth, worth the legwork to go out and, and do it. And just remember, keep it short, which is why I'll stop right now. <laughs> <laughs> Jack? Well, I was um, a latecomer to the party in terms of arriving at Simon Schuster in, uh, in the summer of 88, uh, and Mary's book, uh, due out in uh, spring of 89, was already on the boards in, in the beginning of the planning process. But I thought it was important uh, at the beginning of a new multi-book contract with Mary, and at that point in her career where she was coming off uh, a number of, uh, of big successes, both in hardcover and paperback, to set as a house some very tangible goals for ourselves going forward. Um, we no I noticed, for instance, on her arrival that Mary had not been uh, a number one bestseller in hardcover. That became an immediate objective to try to accomplish that. And also to take her sales up with, uh, with each hardcover publication. Uh, building off the success of paperback publications, doing a, a new mix of marketing uh, uh, via promotion and advertising publicity that would attempt to convert some of her mass market audience to hardcover book buyers, build the expectation by incre increasing the frequency of her publications uh, that uh, every year or every 18 months there would be a new Mary Hickens Clark and that people would be on the watch for it. Uh, and uh, I think we've succeeded in that. Um, when we published... Uh, while My Pretty One Sleeps in May of 89, one of the things that we did that was a little different is we went to uh, television advertising as a, as a way of bringing instant attention to the book of what we thought was uh, her core audience, recognizing that there was already a substantial uh, market for Mary's fiction out there already to begin with. They just needed to be made aware of the book as quickly as possible. Yeah, Mary uh, reminded me uh, this afternoon when we were chatting that, in fact, it was a Clio... Uh, award-winning ad that was done by uh, Dell that was one of the uh, instrumental um, uh, uh, movers in her best-selling performance for uh, her first breakout book, which is Where Are the Children? So it's interesting that I, I came up, we came up with the idea of television, and we were just coming full circle with an idea that had, had been proven successful her uh, ori originally. Uh, we also expanded the publicity effort. I think what Mary says about her readership is that there is a personal bond there. And despite the fact that uh, this is by any measure a mega publishing effort in publishing a Mary Higgins Clark, it's important that we not lose sight of the fact that her readership feels a very personal connection with Mary. And I think taking Mary out to a number of cities, uh, having her do uh, multiple signings, autographings, readings in bookstores, 
Um, meeting the people who are devoted fans is an important ingredient in keeping in touch with the, the roots of her success. So whatever our mix going forward, with, we knew that we wanted to keep that intact and in fact and expand on that. We think there's a great multiplier effect when you have someone of, of Mary's stature to get down there at the grassroots level and be able to um, uh, talk to people who are her devoted fans. And we think that from that, there's a great word of mouth traffic in, for her sales that I think accounts for the fact that her books sell very, very steadily throughout the year. Her last book was on the bestseller list for 22 weeks. I think it's that, that word of mouth influence that gives it that sustaining energy. Um, we gave Mary a new package with that, with that book. Uh, we tried to take it in a more commercial direction, borrowing um, some tricks from, from the mass market in terms of uh, foiling and embossing that gave it a bit more of a slicker look while remaining faithful to the, to the hardcover publication process. And I think that worked for us as well. We also were pretty aggressive about getting floor displays out into the stores to give, help build off that instant recognition that was going to be generated by the TV advertising and by Mary being out and promoting as aggressively as she did. And we had that success. We did take that book to number one. Um, and she's been uh, at number one with her, her subsequent books ever since. Um, and we have been advancing her sales approximately 20, 25% with each, uh, each publication. Um, increasing the frequency of her publication was, was essential to being able to coordinate effectively with our mass market partner, Pocket Books, uh, because what you would ideally would like to do is to be able to cross-promote with your mass market partner and also have the hardcover arriving close enough upon the heels of a paperback success so that people are hungry for the next Mary Higgins Clark and you seem to have a, a built-in uh, steamroller effect as a result. So with, uh, and for the first time, we are this, uh, this coming spring publishing uh, a new novel 12 months after the publication of the last and fast on the heels of the arrival of the pocket edition in the stores. Uh, we're running teaser ads in the pocket edition and we are also uh, cross-merchandising our, our books by um, coming up with a mixed floor display that includes Mary's backlist, so there's a, an active way of promoting backlists with each new publication as well as uh, the new hardcover book. And that'll give us some um, incremental distribution as well into some, some channels that we don't normally reach with, uh, with our hardcover sales force. And Pocket is going to be uh, a participant in selling um, those uh, mixed uh, displays in. Um, and again, we, we continue to set our sights very high for Mary. Uh, but by setting tangible goals for us with each publication and then making sure the marketing mix is there to support that is very important, I feel, with, uh, with uh, uh, an author even of, uh, of Mary's stature. And I think it applies in spades uh, for other uh, authors who have potential for breaking out in bestseller numbers. I'd like one more perspective, if we could, on this question and turn the microphone over to Ann River Siddons. Well, if you would restate the first part of That's, the question for me, You know, me, I was please. beginning to lose what that question was myself. <laughs> question is, did you have a clear sense that your publisher had a plan to manage your career, to build your audience with each new publication? Further, did your hardcover and paperback publishers cooperate in building your audience? Since I have been with HarperCollins, I have had a, a very strong sense that we were at least headed somewhere. Definitely <laughs> had, had, um, had a very clear idea of what I could do, probably clearer than I did myself, because uh, I'm not a part of the New York scene where it's in the air and people know what people are doing. I, I sit in Atlanta and I write. But from the very beginning, we talked about where I might be going to move out of the regional category and maybe into 
into a wider bracket. And uh, I always felt, because of the timing of these books and the way that we talk about what I should do next and the book after that and the book after that, and nobody had ever talked to me in terms of book after anything. You know, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. One thing that made me think maybe we were going somewhere with this, made me very pleased about it, was that uh, with the beginning, I guess it was King's Oak, the book before Out of Banks, we started to put together a, a team that has just been a miraculous thing for my books. It it's, doesn't necessarily follow that you are going to, I think, inherit a wonderful team for your book out of house. I don't think it's necessarily an accident. A lot of thought was put into this, but I ended up with, with Larry, who is an old and dear friend and my first editor, and with uh, my agent, Ginger Barber, and my publicist, Selma Shapiro, who's an old and dear friend. And we got, and of course with the Harper's publicity people, and everything just, just worked. I don't know, it was almost magical, the ideas that went back and forth and that we shared, and everybody used what everybody else could share with them so that we were always talking, we were always thinking, and uh, you could feel the ele electricity start to build, I think, from that day on. I had, uh, I had just naturally sort of come to me that I, I might want to start getting out of the South a little bit with these books, not with any idea that I could develop a wider audience because I simply didn't know how you did that, but that I wanted to set uh, a book out of the South, which will be my next book, is set on the coast of Maine, and the colony will be set on the coast of Penobscot Bay, and the book after that, I hope, maybe to explore Tuscany a little bit. So while they were planning what I might do to push sales out, I was widening a geographic focus, sort of, and everything just seemed to to come together. But I've always felt from the house, we were always talking two and three books ahead, that's a very reassuring thing to an author. You know, <laughs> you're at least not going to have to take your manuscript and knock on a door maybe two or three books down the road. How did you feel about that? Well, <clears throat> well I certainly feel we have a plan for you, and you don't even know the beginning of uh, I know, but see, this is a way of finding out tonight. <laughs> but we do have a three-book contract. I think that's one very important thing. And we said to Anne, we want you to deliver a book every year, uh, and we would publish it uh, at the same time we published the paperback of the previous year, so you get a momentum building. The jackets all have a distinct look, uh, so it says Anne River Siddons, and the artwork has a similar but distinctive artwork in it. So there is a definite uh, program, and as far as moving her out of the the South, uh, we definitely have plans there, and it fits in nicely with the way Anne wants to write to move from <clears throat> Atlanta to Georgia to the North Carolina to Maine, and and uh, and then Italy for the uh, the next novel and wherever it goes after that. But but there is a definite plan working, and uh, <clears throat> and I should have prefaced this by saying that that. Um, uh, I'm glad that Anne's long-range plan is my long-range plan. There was a big problem because when I left Doubleday after 15 years uh, and went to Simon & Schuster, it was, I thought, a great long-range plan. It turned out not to be so great for me, but my authors all went to Simon & Schuster with me, so my plan was then to get them all back, and I think most <laughs> especially Anne. Uh, um, so. 
but there is a plan and, it, and it's a very definite one and we do see eye to eye on it. And we'll reveal more as we go along in our year. Okay, I have to wait till we have witnesses to bring right. Okay, the next question is uh, a question that comes up not only on best-selling authors, but also on authors when they're first starting out, which is, what role did regional publicity and promotions, such as local readings, independent bookstore mailings, et cetera, play in your success? And I'd like to go back to uh, Mary Higgins Clark and get her thoughts on that, if I could. Is that the one that we, yeah. I think. Uh, we addressed it. In, we addressed in part. that one in part, at least, uh, Charlie, I think. Well, Mary, you've you done your job then. <laughs> Let's move along. Mary, Dominic you want me to wing, wing it for a second? Um, okay. Yeah, just to elaborate, uh, I mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at a, a book campaign like Mary's, uh, like a political campaign, that ha making things happen at the grassroots is a key component of that. And with Mary, we recognized uh, immediately that uh, continuing to build on that core strength of her readership through um, extensive touring was, uh, was a must. Um, but there's another aspect to that, and that is that Mary is such a likable person and so loved by booksellers that, <laughs> that we shouldn't squander that resource either. And, uh, and what we've been able to do over time, I think, is establish a rapport with individual booksellers that is unsurpassed in my experience. I, they, uh, there, are, there are booksellers that we can absolutely count on to clamor for Mary for signing or an autographing virtually anything we want to do. In fact, we're in a position of regretfully having to turn down opportunities, telling them that we'll get them on the next swing, on the next book, whether it be in paperback or hardcover. And I think it's important because you know, there's an interesting statistic coming out of that new uh, consumer book purchasing uh, survey that, that uh, you may have read about recently. And that is, is that upwards of 40, 45% of the stores, of the sales that occur in bookstores are not planned purchases, that in fact these are browsers that are going into a store. And I think <clears throat> to have a devoted bookseller, whether it be a store manager or a clerk or, or uh, anyone on, on the sales level who interacts with customers, be able to direct um, um, an interested uh, reader to a particular author or a particular book that's out is a key in factor in helping to build sales for any author, whether it be a best-selling author or a first novelist. So that, that and as the industry goes through some of the changes that it's going through in terms of what's happening at the retail level, in terms of superstores, et cetera, the way in which bookstores are becoming more and more cultural meccas for their communities, and many bookstores have their own uh, marketing coordinators, event coordinators, what have you. It's important, I think, that that relationship be a firm one, both between the publisher, but also individual authors with individual booksellers. And I think Mary has uh, that relationship, that first first-hand relationship with booksellers, which is a key factor uh, in each of her publications, and we and we build on that to the maximum. A quick thing, Charlie. The one thing that uh, doesn't cost any money, and when you're starting and building, the radio stations. There are an awful lot of talk shows around, and a lot of them are looking for guests, and they have audiences, and they have devoted audiences. And since for someone who wrote radio scripts for a long, long time. Uh, I know the numbers in radio, and I always will go on a radio station because you get a you get a listenership and you get a call in ship that you don't get on television. And believe me, I value television. So I would suggest to anyone uh, take take a look at all the talk shows that are around and have a package ready. And of course, a publicist is wonderful to find in your book what makes it universal. Liesl Kate is a joy to work with, and. Uh, that takes you to the local areas, you see, which is what we started with. 
And sometimes you get an idea. I got an idea for my second book when I was on a radio program for my first during the news thing. I thought, gee, that'd make a good subject. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic, down the role of regional uh, publicity and promotion, local readings, et cetera? Well, I think almost everything has been said on it by everybody else. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I would just be uh, repeating that. But I certainly believe it's very, very important. Uh, on one of my books, I think I did a 22-city tour. And I do anything that the uh, Susan Magrino, the publicist for Crown, wherever she points me, I go. I do whatever they want me to do, because I know how incredibly important it is. I also, like PJ, am on the lecture circuit. And um, I, I lecture a lot to. Uh, women's clubs to junior leagues to Hadassah to men's clubs to college groups, etc. Et, et I always try to work it out if I can to see if at the end of the lecture in the back of the hall if they could sell a few of my books <laughs> and, uh, you know, to bring their credit cards with them. And, and uh, I think it's very, very important. I do whatever. I mean, radio, absolutely. I think radio is almost better than uh, uh, TV. Uh, I've been very fortunate at um, uh, Crown, not only with having Betty Prashkir as my editor, but having uh, Susan uh, Magrino as the uh, publicist. And she has been able to get me on uh, the Today Show for all the books I've um, uh, published there. But that's only the beginning, because you have to go out uh, into the various cities around it's a, it is a, uh, a business of getting up early in the morning, being on the local TV show there, in which you also plug the fact that that day you're going to be at such and such a bookstore on Water Street at 2 o'clock, and for the people to come. You then go to the newspapers, you do the interviews with the newspapers, you go to the radio shows, do the things, and then you do the... Uh, um, uh, book signings in, in, the, in the various uh, bookstores. I also always, whenever I'm asked to speak at a library, always, no matter where it is, I go. Because that's very, very important. It's important to build yourself so that very often people who may not have read you hear you at a lecture and then when your next book comes out, they say, oh yeah, I remember him. He was the guy who, you know, and so forth. And um, it's, uh, I find also that on the, uh, um, on the local TV shows around the country and the radio shows, very often they have not read your book. And, uh, you know, that, and they can't read every book that um, uh, comes. And, uh, but I, uh, I also write for Vanity Fair magazine. And so I always have something else that they can talk to me about because they might very well have read an article that, that you know, has uh, just uh, come out. And I have learned how to uh, go and, and they talk about one thing and I've, I'm now able to bring the conversation back to, <laughs> to it's a, uh, as a matter of fact, Crown sent me to Dorothy Sarnoff and paid some very expensive lessons to learn how to bring the conversation back each time to the book that you are um, uh, plugging. <laughs> could we actually, could we hold the questions till the end? Well, that's quite all right, but we, we've got a fairly extensive program we'd like to get through. I apologize, but 
Uh, I'd like to get the author's opinions and, and go through the program if we could, so my apologies. Um, Betty, do you have anything you'd like to add? Well, I think Nick and, and the others have, have really said it all. I, I would just say about regions that there are regions within regions. And uh, with the two Mrs. Grenvilles, one of the first tip-offs that we had that the book was really going to fly was the Madison Avenue Bookshop, uh, where it was the number one bestseller, I think, for weeks, if, if not months. And I think that when, when uh, a publisher discovers that there's certain bellwether bookstores uh, where the book, because of its subject matter, because of the author, uh, is really going to go, that it's, it's, we are able to kind of mount a campaign that begins, perhaps, with 10 strategic bookstores uh, across the country. And from there, it kind of fans out and gets into the chains and gets into the airport stores and, uh, and the other places where hardcover books are sold like mass market books. And I think that we have had that kind of uh, success with Dominic's <coughs> books because they are so appealing uh, across the board. Anne, do you have anything to add to that? Not really much, except, and I think unless you've had an enormous first success, just that puts you in a class where you're not going to have to bother with regionals anymore, going out and working a region faithfully is not only the best way to reach critical mass, so you just sooner or later up into some other category, but it's, it's one of the rewards for being a writer, uh, the sense of who's selling your book. I, I rarely meet booksellers. I don't like. I rarely meet book buyers I don't like, although unlike PJ, it has not been my experience that everybody who shakes your hand is going to buy your book. I <laughs> two 80-year-old twin sisters, ladies in a little southern town who, who came in and came up to where I was, and I said, may I sell you books? And, oh, no. We, uh, we used to always come and look at whoever was on the sixth <laughs> 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 So uh, you have lots to talk about over the dinner table after <laughs> Larry? No, I have nothing to add to okay. that. Terry? Yeah, I wanted to say that um, I think that the, the, those of us who are up here as authors are, are very, very fortunate. I know I am. Um, because I think that it's important for those in the audience who are beginning writers or who have one novel or hope to have a novel published with stories that one of the things that people have a tendency to forget, and I learned very, very early on uh, with Houghton Mifflin, and this is nothing against them, but um, if you don't have the support of your editor and the publicity department, because sometimes publishers lie. You know, they have you thinking you know, they, that they love your book, and then they don't spend any money to promote it. And if no one knows about your book, and if you aren't fortunate enough to get more than a 600-page or 600-word review in the New York Times, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, and if you can't get on the, on the, the lecture circuit or do readings, um, then people don't know about your work. And therefore, you don't build. You know? um, and I think, in, in that sense, that I, I have been very fortunate because my editor, who is Don Safarian, and my agent, Molly Frieders, they have a very good working relationship. And they sort of play on each other, and, it, and, and, and 
I have been lucky, but with my first novel, Mama, I got very, very nervous. I had read all these horror stories about first novels that not only got remaindered, but never got reviewed. No one knew about it. I mean, really good, fine books. Where, and, and, and authors get very discouraged. And if, you, and if, you're, if your publisher tells you they're gonna print 10,000, and they print five, and they sell 2,500, you get disgruntled, you get, you get discouraged. And, and then they don't want, and the publisher doesn't want to spend the money because the book's not selling. And my feeling is that in some cases when we're writing, this is our, this is our life. But when it's a book, it's a product, and it's like toothpaste. And if Crest weren't on TV every day, you wouldn't be buying it. Um, and, and so I think that if you, it's important at an early stage to get the support of your editor and the publicity department. And Janet Craybill, as far as, uh, and Paul Slovak, both at Viking, they did an incredible job of making sure that, that my book got out there. I didn't know the book was gonna do as well as it, as it was. And if I had to just do it all on my own, if you don't have the support in-house, then it doesn't matter if you write the most exquisite book. If no one knows about it, no one's gonna buy it. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I think Terry makes a good point. Our business, uh, or I like to think of it as the business of enthusiasm. Uh, there's always 50 reasons why a book can't sell, and our job as publishers is, is to try and find those two or three reasons why it should sell. Um, I'd like to now to move on to question four, and I'm going to come right back to Terry. Oh. Um, every author imagines an ideal reader. In marketing terms, every book has a target audience. How did your publicity and marketing people set out to find yours? What original approaches did they try? What worked? And what were the dead ends? Well, first of all, it's kind of obvious I'm black. Um, <laughs> and all the people and characters, for the most part, in my in, in, in Breaking Ice, at least, um, were black. And at the same time, you know, um, they, you know, the publicity department, Janet Craybill, did a pretty good job of making sure. They they also had told me that, you know, there was this uh, there was this uh, they have this college marketing division. You know, that there was this uh, interest in the book as far as colleges and universities, which I hadn't really thought about, to be honest with you, uh, until they brought it up. And so they did a really, really good job of zeroing in, and, and I don't know how they do it, but to make sure that they make these colleges and universities aware of this. And later on, I found out that a lot of African-American studies and lit programs were Xeroxing our work and had been sick of it because, you know, there wasn't, you know, I mean, there are people that have been published since the 60s, but there was no um, anthology that, that had all of our work in it. So the publicity department, I think, really did a really, really good job. Now, as far as myself, is, is, is my audience, I mean, I read all kinds of authors. I don't just read black authors. I'm curious about people's lives in general. Uh, specifically those lives that are different from my own. Um, and so it, I, don't, I wasn't thinking just in terms of how can I just appeal, or how, did, how would this book just appeal to black readers, but also just to introduce um, the people who read in general um, about our work, about new writers, to let people know that there are more than four or five of us out here. So that was, that was what I consider to be our, our, our ideal reader. And again, um, I don't know, but the publicity department 
um, when they, you know, they get with the editors and all of that stuff, and they, they, they do this magic stuff. Um, because it's a lot of work, a, a hell of a lot more than I ever thought of. Um, and they, 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 they set up all of this stuff, these tours, and they make you go, they go, you go to these places where people are waiting for you. <laughs> and they seem to be excited about what's what you've done. And so far, you know, I say my prayers every night. I've been lucky. We haven't had any dead ends. And uh, I hope we don't. <laughs> Maybe, Michael, you can tell us a little bit what, what some of this magic was. <laughs> There are no dead ends. Um, well, I think, I think the, the one key statement that Terry made, the two key statements, one is she's black. Uh, the second key statement, I think, is that um, um, the audience is waiting for her. Uh, the audience is waiting for this book. The audience is waiting. I think, uh, I think it's an area of publishing that we in, uh, in New York have uh, really underpublished to. Uh, the timing for this book uh, couldn't have been better. Uh, we published it in October of 1990. The National Book Award winner uh, uh, that year was Charles Johnson's Middle Passage. Uh, everybody knows what happened with that book, uh, both in hardcover and in paperback. It actually was been published by Plume, which is part of Penguin USA, and has had phenomenal success with that. And I think those of you who are in the editorial side of the business know uh, how editors and, uh, and agents are scrambling around now to sign up more uh, both African-American writers, um, uh, Hispanic writers, Asian-American writers, uh, Amy Tan's success, uh, and all the rest. I think one of the interesting things that Terry said, and I uh, read through all the press material last night and a lot of the interviews she gave for Breaking Ice, was that, uh, that she felt that there was a sort of a racism going on in, in, in publishing, and that uh, you didn't often see, or you didn't rarely saw, a new novel by Gloria Naylor, Alice Walker, um, uh, Toni Morrison, uh, and, uh, and some other black writers coming out uh, at the same time. It's like, oh, here's a, here's a, black, uh, a black writer and we're going to sort of make this separate. Well, guess what? This fall you have, or this spring you have a new novel by Terry McMillan, Alice Walker, Gloria Naylor. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's happening. The market is out there. I think what publishers have to realize is that, uh, uh, that maybe the, uh, the old notion that black people don't read books is because publishers don't publish books for black audiences. And I think that that's one of the things we certainly discovered with the publication of, uh, of Breaking Ice and Disappearing Acts, uh, Tony's, uh, I mean, uh, Tony's, Terry's novel. And, uh, and uh, certainly with Waiting, Waiting to Exhale, which is her next novel, our sales reps are dying to sell this book because of the enthusiasm for, uh, for Terry's work. Uh, and she's a fine literary writer, but she's a very commercial writer. Uh, people who read, women, uh, black women, uh, women of color, who read uh, commercial women's fiction, uh, you know, there's not enough uh, black commercial women's fiction out there, and they want to read it. Uh, so I think that, you know, the timing uh, was something that we didn't, uh, we didn't plan on, but we certainly uh, published right into that as part of the magic. I think just to play off some of the other things that other people have said about, about promotion and publicity, uh, we brought Terry to the ABA, which in Las Vegas a couple years ago, and uh, she was in the reading room there. And she met with booksellers. We had a luncheon for her with booksellers and with our sales reps and with accounts. And there is no substitute, absolutely, and I think all these authors up here have reiterated that, for uh, getting to know the people who sell the book, not only the salespeople who sell your book, but the people who ultimately put it in somebody's hand in the bookstore and, uh, and say, you've got to read this. This is wonderful. 
And once you get people involved in that process all the way down the line, then I think you really start to build a constituency. We did this booklet, which was an excerpt uh, from Breaking Ice, which we distributed to our reps and to accounts and to our academic accounts as well and gave it away at a lot of conventions, which is really how you begin to get to the academic market by displaying book at, uh, at, uh, at the various conventions. There are probably 30 or 40 of them a year that our academic marketing department goes to. And, uh, and after that, it just began to take off. I mentioned before that Terry did a six-city author tour. She was on Good Morning America, but she was also on, did a lot of local, uh, local media, which people have spoken to already. And uh, the book, uh, this book, Breaking Ice, was featured last year and again in 1992, this year in February, in a Black History Month promotion uh, uh, that many bookstores are doing, foremost among them the B. Dalton or Barnes & Noble chain. And Terry, in fact, wrote an introductory essay last year in the uh, in that uh, pamphlet they hand out, and I think that was a tremendous amount of exposure for her uh, in the trade. My mother helps. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I think some of it's magic, some of it's timing, some of it's because uh, there's an audience out there that uh, is waiting and, uh, and ready and willing and able to, to buy uh, uh, books by, uh, by uh, African-American writers. And uh, as I said before, a, a lot of it just has to do with uh, the fact that we have a tremendous author. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next question is a question that publishers and I think writers both spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about. It's a rather long-winded question, so I'm going to tell you in advance, Dominic, it's coming to you. Um, and the question is, um, what was it about your breakthrough book that was different from your prior work? Did that difference, in fact, make the difference to your success, or were there other factors, such as marketplace or current events, uh, coincidences that, that made the difference? Would you also address how the appearance of your writing in other print media has affected the success of the sales of your books? Well, first, I, I just want to say I'm a late life uh, writer. Uh, and uh, I, uh, all my books, all my novels, are based on uh, events uh, that have happened in sort of the high class world uh, involving um, uh, criminal intent are things that are gotten away with. And my first novel, uh, which I just want to tell you the name of, it was called um, The Winners, part two of Joyce Haber's The Users, and in little tiny print at the bottom of it, it said, by Dominic Dunn. And it was one of the great flops of all time. And um, uh, it, um, so that my, breakthrough book was the next book, which was The uh, Two Mrs. Uh, Grenvilles, and um, which was based on a society uh, a shooting murder in Long Island in the 1950s. And um, uh, I had this extraordinary bit of good luck uh, in that I, uh, at the, after this book, I turned it in. Uh, I, for Vanity Fair magazine, I covered the trial of Klaus von Bülow in uh, Providence. And um, the, that, it was a two-part magazine article, which some of you may remember the photographs taken by Helmut Newton in which Klaus von Bülow and his then mistress posed in black leather that went with this article. And, and that article came out almost concurrently with the release of The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. So I was still an unknown author, but the, 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 the combination of the two caused an enormous amount of attention. 
and that was focused on me at that, at that time, which is what got me onto all the television shows, which a, a first-time author of a novel doesn't normally get on. And um, uh, let me see, what's the difference in your success or were there other factors? Well, I think that is the, <laughs> that is the other factor. Uh, <laughs> I think that's it. Betty? Yeah, well, uh, I, I would just go on to say that uh, Dominic has really, in my judgment, developed a kind of genre all its own in fiction, which, which I would term uh, what is the event and who are all those people? And uh, it started really with the two Mrs. Granvilles, which as we said, was based on, on the Woodward case. But having set that example, he followed uh, with a book called People Like Us, a novel called uh, People Like Us, in which, uh, to his horror, uh, Women's Wear Daily ran a list of the characters with their names and pictures of the people that they thought uh, the book was about. And this was something that uh, caused a great hoo-ha, <laughs> right, in the publishing house and, and with, with Dominic. But in the end, it actually developed into an enormous curiosity to read the book, which in fact was really not based on all these people, but was a composite of the kinds of people that uh, Nick has met in the course of doing articles for Vanity Fair and in the course of his own life, a certain strata of society, which he is a part of, but also an observer of. And those people are immensely curious about what is going to be written about them. And they do a lot to fan the flames of publicity uh, for his books. And uh, that followed again with, uh, with uh, An Inconvenient Woman, where we again had, had uh, the question, is this based on something? Are these characters people in real life that we know about? So that was one part of what kind of, kind of as I said, fueled the flames and got him on a number of, of television shows and got him something to talk about uh, besides the fact that, uh, that these were, were novels and, and good novels. And I think that uh, there's a word in here, coincidence. I don't know whether it's coincidence but, uh, or karma or what it is, but what seems to happen every time there's a Dominic Dunn book out on the stands are events that help the book. <laughs> and uh, whatever you're doing, Nick, <laughs> keep, keep, on, keep on doing it, yeah. With the Mansions of Limbo, which is a, col uh, a collection of his most recent pieces in Vanity Fair, it just happened that the Willie Smith rape case was going on at the, uh, at the same time that he had written a piece, which was not in the book, for Vanity Fair about the uh, William Kennedy Smith rape trial, that he was on television on Good Morning America three or four times a week commenting on, on, the, uh, on the trial. 
And so what we have here is a kind of quadruple threat author. We've got the books, we've got the Vanity Fair pieces, we've got uh, the publicity appearances, and in the case of the novels, we also have miniseries. Every single one of his novels has become a miniseries. And there again, there's a bigger audience so that each, each book uh, finds itself a bigger audience and better sales. So I think uh, Dominic is, uh, is, is, a very, is, is a unique author in the sense that we have so many features that are all combining to propel his books uh, onto the bestseller list and beyond. Okay. I would just say one more thing, which really isn't on this question, but we have discussed multiple book contracts. And I would say that, uh, like multiple orgasms, uh, multiple book contracts are a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we should have more and more of them. <laughs> well, on that happy note, I think we'll move along to... Uh, <laughs> I think we ought to move along to P.J. O'Rourke's thoughts on his uh, breakthrough book, if you will. The, the undistaff side of the panel here is <laughs> puzzling over that metaphor. <laughs> what do we know? Uh, <laughs> um, there, there were a couple things that were uh, uh, different about this, uh, this last book that I did and the first book that really sold really, really well for me. Uh, I was speaking to a broader audience, uh, which I think is important. Uh, previously, I had been doing stuff that was uh, 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 targeted at probably the sort of the frazzled drug edge of the of the uh, baby boom generation, which is a large edge <laughs> <laughs> and very frazzled. But nonetheless, it's not it's not a real majority of people. And uh, I, I was talking about a uh, a, a subject with a, a broader interest. Um, the entire government of the United States. And uh, everybody comes into contact with this. Uh, to a conservative such as myself, everybody comes into a lot too much contact with this. But despite my conservatism, which probably is not a majoritarian point of view, I, I think I just, I just hit a nerve. I was very lucky. I happened to come out with a book in which I expressed pro, uh, uh, profound annoyance with government at a moment uh, uh, in, in, in which Americans were feeling profound annoyance with government. And just about the time the book was being published, all this Russia and fall of communism and the, um, uh, the end of the superpower era, uh, end of history sort of stuff was going on. And I was thinking, oh gosh, well this, you know, nobody's going to be interested in domestic politics with all this wonderful stuff going on. But in fact, just about the only thing our government had done that was of any reasonable interest or that, that we could say that they had done it all well was uh, uh, stand up to, to nasty nations overseas. All of a sudden, there weren't any. And uh, this really left our government with nothing to do. And so when I, I started to point out that uh, uh, Democrats are the party uh, that says they can make you richer, they can make you taller, they can make you smarter, they can get the crabgrass out of your lawn, and Republicans are the party that, that, that says the government doesn't work and then they get elected and prove it, um, I think I really struck a nerve in the American public. So it was, you know, it was a, a combination of, uh, of, um, of, you know, marketing intentions, and uh, and good luck. 
I don't have much to add to that except that I think we were uh, discussing yesterday in a preliminary meeting about the, the factor of luck in publishing. And I think as a publisher, you can't try to publish too much into the headlines uh, or else you get in real trouble because, you know, I've always had this theory that sort of newspapers react the fastest, magazines a little slower in more, uh, slightly more substance, and books uh, uh, in much more substance over a longer period of time. And so that you get about six months from now, you get these books, Gorbachev, Man of the Hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's a problem. And, and when we came up with the idea for this book in, I guess, 88 or maybe even late 87, it was, I had sort of, I was so bored with political discourse in this country. And I wanted to do a book about Washington and how Washington worked. But I didn't want to do it with like a straight journalist because it was like makes your eyes glaze over. And I thought PJ, PJ had just finished doing Holidays in Hell, going around the country and going around the world sort of looking for trouble and, and asking, well, what's funny about this? And I thought, well, why not send him to Washington? What better place? And, and uh, I think when we came up with that idea, it struck us both as, as, as real interesting. But uh, it turned out to be even more timely. I mean, another about the timeliness of it when, when um, this winter the Gulf War was going on and I got concerned of like, oh God, I mean, I, I know a number of publishers in the room had problems when you were trying to release books at the, you know, the, the height of that war is forget getting any publicity for anything that didn't have to do with that war. Uh, nobody wanted to hear about it. And uh, I thought right after there was about a, I guess it only lasted for about a week, but there was a period for, for the first time in my adult life, this country seemed to be pleased with our government. But, and I thought, oh no. Fortunately, maybe, it went away. Right. <laughs> and and, and I, I remember talking to another, to PJ and another friend, and I said, oh, should we delay the book? And, and our friend who works at ABC said, no, don't worry, they'll screw it up quickly, and everybody will. And sure enough, they did. I mean, it was, you know, they left the Kurds and, you know, everything else turning on domestic policy. Uh, sort of went in the crapper too, but I think that, that you, can't, you can't underestimate uh, the factor of luck in publishing. I mean, it, it, it happened to me with this book, it's happened to me on other books, and uh, sometimes you have bad luck, but uh, uh, you hope that you have good luck more often. But I think that, that the timeliness of books, that, that luck factor is something that is out of a publisher's control. I think if you're, if, you, if you're sort of arrogant, you think, well, maybe I had my finger on the pulse, but I don't think that that's true. I think that you sort of just guessed right, and it happened to work, and maybe you just were smelling something that was in the air at the time. But and Sometimes you can have your finger on the pulse all too well. Uh, the first book that I did, which actually uh, Morgan uh, uh, signed me up for, was this Modern Manners, and it was a, a humorous look at etiquette. And it was right in that, that period when um, there had been the, the preppy handbook had, had, uh, had, had come out and had done enormously well. And by the time my book got out, there were about 11 million humorous looks at manners and, and, and behavior uh, uh, on, on the market also. So we had our finger on the pulse all right. You know, so the patient was dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving along to uh, Terry McMillan. Well, um, I think what was different about this book, uh, as far as uh, in relationship to my other, I got sued um, for uh, libel and defamation, which I'd like to figure out. Dominic, I'd like to talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> to find out how you pull this off. On my, in my, my new book, which is a novel called Waiting to Exhale, um, I didn't have a disclaimer in, in Disappearing Acts, and so I, I reached on my bookshelf and I said, you know, which of these books, you know, who takes the most risk? And I said, Dominic Gunn, you know, people, and I reached out and I said, I just 
typed your disclaimer in my book. But of course, Viking has their own. <laughs> but um, anyway, also, um, what I also have, have, have done, I don't know if it helps or not, is I, I, I talk a lot to young kids. And um, also my book, the new one that's coming out, which is called Waiting to Exhale, uh, a, fifth, a fifth grader at my son's school wrote me a thank you note because I talked to 60 of them, told me that he couldn't wait for my new book, Gasping for Air, <laughs> to come out, and he would like to know where he might be able to purchase it. So I think as far as what the difference is, is that from what I've been told, um, my books for the most part I think are contemporary. Um, they're sort of like up to the minute. There's a lot of sex in my books, which from what I've also been told, um, you don't, and love, <laughs> you don't see a lot of black people um, being in love, loving, making love and enjoying it um, in our works. And um, I sort of have developed this reputation for that. Um, unfortunately, more of it happens in my books. Which is why I have so much fun. But um, I think that that too has had something to do with it, with, with them selling. Uh, breaking Ice, um, I think that there was just a lot of different kinds of experiences because I think black people and uh, have some, in some cases, been stereotyped. Um, you know, they think we are all these sufferers, which in real life everybody is. Um, but ours, is, to some degree, has, has has almost been under a microscope, as if we all have the same experiences. And my feeling was, with breaking ice, is that we do not all live the same lives. We do not all just because we're all black, we do not all come from the same place. Nor do we all have. Our parents treat us different, we, we, you know, it's different. And so, in that sense, Breaking Ice, I think, sort of helped prove, at least in 57 different ways, not always, but 57 different ways, that, that this is possible. Um, and as far as what difference it has made, um, you know, my agent, Molly Friedrich, has sort of warned me, because people start asking you to do everything. You know, like speak to fifth grade classes and stuff. Um, they ask you to do everything, and people want you to be everywhere all the time. And all of this is sort of new to me. Um, and I'm just realizing that I have to learn how to say no, because you can't do, I mean, I heard Magic Johnson say on TV today to the president, I mean, head of this AIDS commission thing, you know, everybody wants him to be able to do this and do that and do this. And he just said he can, he's only one person. And he can only do one thing at a time. And that's what I'm starting to realize. And I don't, my, I don't even see, I, I, you know, I don't sell the kind of books as much as you guys. I mean, I don't sell as many books as you guys. And it's like it gets very, very tiring. Because my, what's my, my priority is writing. And I like reading, and I like being in the audience. I like being in front of um, audiences. And I want people to read my book. But the most important part is sitting at home in front of my computer. And, and writing the stories, and pray that people like your stories enough to buy them and read them. And I think that's what's, um, I don't write, I hate writing reviews. You know, I've turned down the New York Times so many times because I'm dreadful at it. You know, I read for pleasure, I don't read critically. 
and I don't like reading critically. Um, I like listening to talk shows and telling them what I think <laughs> in the confines of my home. <laughs> those are as far as essays as I'm going to get. Mike? Well, I really don't have much to add to that. I, I've already spoken about the timing of, uh, of breaking ice and, uh, and the market, the market conditions uh, being there uh, for it. Um, I think in answer to the question, um, I don't know that Terry McMillan's had her breakthrough book, book yet. I think the uh, sky's the limit, and I think the next book is going to be bigger than the last book, and the book after that bigger than that. I think the audience is huge and, and waiting, and I think uh, one of the things that makes Terry special uh, and provocative uh, and contemporary and all the rest of it is that um, uh, she's in touch with, uh, with, with her audience. Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a, uh, a common uh, woman uh, uh, that she speaks to, an ex an ex common experience that she speaks to that I think is, uh, is really fresh. And uh, I think that, um, you know, every book is different. And I think that that's, uh, I think that's really a fresh thing about an author. Okay, we have two questions left left. The, um, the next question is a fairly pragmatic one about timing, but the last question is a very provocative one that we're going to ask all the writers to, uh, to address. And just in the interest of time, I'd like to, on this more pragmatic question, be a little bit brief if we could, because I'm very interested in, in knowing about how writers feel about success and how it affects their writing. But before we get to that, I'd like to know, uh, how do you think the timing or season of the publication of your books has affected the success of their sales? And we're going to go to Ann River Siddons for the answer. It made an enormous difference for me. I, uh, I had my first large national tour with a book called King's Oak two years ago, and it was in the fall, and I set out with every, heady, every hitter who ever published seemed to have a book out that fall, and I really was so new at it that I thought, Lord, look at me, this is great. You know, so when you're on tour, you tend to sort of get in a slot with somebody, and you just see them everywhere, you follow them, and I I got slotted in with Jean Owl. <laughs> I followed Jean Owl I know, all over the West. She was traveling with quite a large group of people, and I was traveling with one media escort who was great. But I began to get the distinct impression about Berkeley in green rooms and, and waiting rooms that the people who were interviewing thought I was her personal trainer or something. <laughs> 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 Just disappeared right into the wall. And so uh, I thought maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there is more to it than being put out with the best that there are because I was, I was just not known then. And then HarperCollins made a decision to bring out Outer Banks, my last year's book, in the summer. I think partly because it dealt with the reunion of four sorority sisters on the Outer Banks of North Carolina as a summer book, and, and the difference was just enormous. I've, nobody has thought I was anybody's personal trainer, nor have they thought anybody else was mine yet. <laughs> That's going to be a great day. But <laughs> Larry could probably address the whys to that better than I could. Well, I, I'll just give the facts that... Uh, uh, the book that came out in the fall, which was King's Oats, so in the mid-five figures, and Outer Banks, which was published in the summer and was able to get a lot more promotion, publicity, and a lot more reviews, uh, sold six figures after 
uh, return. So we, we doubled your sales between two books, which was very good indeed. Huh. Nice for me. Question of timing for uh, Mary Higgins Clark. Oh, I think it's vital because you don't want to come out with all the big guns. Uh, I like to take a look at the list and say, where is a window where I can slip through? You know, sort of like a second story man. And I do find that coming out in May is very good for me because I'm a good Mother's Day sale, <laughs> which is very important. And people seem to give my books to graduation, you know, to students and to that kind of thing. So I find it's a time, and it seems to be a time when if, if you're going to come out and, with uh, someone like a Tom Clancy and a Stephen King, and uh, you know, right, go right down the list of the people who, a Daniel Steele, people who traditionally hit number one, you're, you're all going to be, a uh, Sidney Sheldon, you're all going to be bumping into each other. So I have found that coming out in May is, a, is good for my sales, and then the next year I'm an, coming out for the summer in, a, in the pocketbook edition, and I'm a good summer read. So that has been really vital, which is one of the reasons why I really have worked just, oh gosh, for the last seven months, because I wanted my new book to come out in May, not, in, uh, not later. And uh, I think every author should try to find his spot where his book seems to fit as much as is humanly possible, of course. But I can't think of anything worse than coming out with all the big guns and maybe destroying your chance to get on shows, to get publicity, to get uh, a decent spot in the bookstore, and to have people come in and they're not going to buy probably all seven or eight. So don't be with the authors that traditionally sell a million copies. I avoid them like the plague. <laughs> Jack? Yeah, I just want to second uh, second that. There's uh, there's a lot less seasonality in uh, in, in the hardcover side of this business, at least, than um, than I think intuitively all, we all think there must be, based because of all the hype that occurs around around the uh, lead into uh, the holiday season. Um, and I, I think that's been borne out. Uh, various studies have shown that. But more importantly, I think timing is one of the variables available to a publisher that has become increasingly critical as we've all become more sophisticated about how we market our books, uh, whether it be through publicity or point of sale, whatever it is. Timing is, is a key factor. And you know we have our ear to the rail to keep track of what, what the competition is doing in terms of when new books are coming out. And I, I think it's, it works for everyone to try to space out some of these books, big books throughout the year. Because people like to read throughout the year. And it's not just a question of of buying books, books for gifts. But I think the majority of books are bought for the, for the self. And I think if you can slot your opportunity well, publish effectively into that, into that window, as Mary described it, um, you have a much better opportunity for, for getting breaking through success if all the other factors are with you, including uh, the ever-elusive factor of luck that Morgan mentioned. Um, in Mary's case, May makes uh, double sense because not only is Mother's Day a perfect springboard in terms of getting um, a lot of sales early on, but uh, Mary's books tend to sell very well over time, and that means we have an opportunity to promote and re-promote her books into the fall <laughs> with our major accounts, and that, that leads to that kind of long tail of sales that leads to you know, the, the, the terrific sales that experience that we've had with Mary um, over time. And uh, so it's, it's, it's an important factor and one that is in increasingly important, I think. One thing I might just add to that is that 
The other thing is, pray God, you don't come out with someone on the same subject exactly. That can hurt you a lot, I think. So it's, uh, if something is hot, and this was discussed earlier, it's something I say when I'm speaking to new writers, you know, people who say, how do you do it, or how do you get there, or whatever. Uh, if there's an exciting event now, don't write about that event, because as you say, it's gonna be a Gorbachev man of the year sort of thing. But see what's coming up over the hill. See what people are starting to talk about. Watch for the little brush fire uh, of a subject that is starting to happen so that when your book comes out, there's an awareness going on. And that's what I always try to do, just look for the brush fire and, and then get the book out. Don't take seven years to write it because by the time you have it, it won't be a brush fire. The forest will have regrown. <laughs> Okay, our final question I'd like to be addressed uh, exclusively to the authors if we could. And after I finish reading it, I'd like to start down at the other end of the podium and have Anne address the question first and we'll move right on back towards me if you would. And the question is as follows. Does success hurt or help your work on your next book? In other words, does the success of a title free you or freeze you? And how did you handle that change and challenge? Anne? Well, it made me very happy and I work a lot better when I'm happy. Uh, uh, also, I, I think it tends to freeze you a lot more when you are reminded as you come out the door than, than when you're, you're seeing some success. But I, well, I do have, I've always had contracts, and a, a three-year, three-book contract, and the clear and present danger of having to give an advance back is a <laughs> grand thing. <laughs> get the wheels in motion. It, uh, it hasn't been a problem, but then I haven't had the level of success that a lot of our panelists have either, so maybe that would be better addressed by an enormous seller, and I'll pass down to them. I well, just would like to interject. I think many authors would love to have your sales and your I'm success, not, so you're being a little <laughs> modest, I must say. I'm not, not. Dominic? <laughs> well, uh, the success of a book absolutely helps you in your, in your next book. There's just no two ways about that. Uh, and the success of the book after that, I mean, it just builds, and your audience, you know, is waiting for your next book, hopefully. That's the ideal. Also, but it does have the other thing, it really is terrifying also, because you think, my God, can I do this next time? And that is very inhibiting, and the fact is, you just gotta write through that. Mary? Well, as my son said, why didn't this happen when I was 10? <laughs> 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 but the fact is, when you start out, you know, people are usually very encouraging. I was a little widow who was writing on the kitchen table, you know, and there was, uh, uh, everyone felt very nice about it. I had the feeling as though, you know when you're in the circus, the first act has a guy with a balancing rod on a very thick wire, and there's a net under him. And with each success, they raise the notch, and they take away the net, and the wire gets thinner. And my mental image now is when I start a book or when I'm about to launch a book is that the wire is very thin. It's way up there. I'm going to squish if I go down. I'm riding a bicycle. I'm holding an umbrella. And there are three midgets dancing on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, babe. DJ? Um, well, you can't. There's, there's no way that you can argue against success. It's what you had worked for, and it would just be absolutely hideously ungrateful and so on. Um, but it is time-consuming. This is, uh, this is uh, it's a little tricky. Uh, 
Uh, if a book is going well, the temptation is to send you out and do more publicity. Uh, you start getting uh, a few, uh, for instance, as, as, as Dominic and I do, and I'm probably several of the other uh, authors here, uh, if you're on the lecture circuit, all of a sudden you're in more demand on the lecture circuit. Your pay on the lecture circuit is higher. Uh, people want you to do essays and articles like the, the, time, uh, the, the Times book reviews. Or, um, and uh, more demands are made upon your time and this can distract you from the actual business that you're in, which is um, um, sitting at home doing that thing, which we all hate to do most, which is writing. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a, a uh, uh, there, there is a, a mixture of, uh, 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 it is, it is a, a mixed blessing, but it is a blessing. It is an enormous, enormous blessing, and uh, I can handle the mix. You know, so, <laughs> so, so, I don't mind. Well, for me, it's, um, it's, 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 it's been mixed in a sense that other people have sort of let me know, have sort of told me how successful I am. Um, because as a reader, I mean, as a writer, you know, you're, you're not at the bookstores. You don't know um, how many people are reading your book and how many people really love it and are liking it. But the thing that has happened to me is that a lot of stuff has happened really fast in a short period of time. And, um, you know, my, my editor and my agent have been very, very supportive and very, very, they, they, they're very excited. And so I, when I got this advance on this last book, I mean, $50 is a lot of money. <laughs> and um, I'm saying, you know, no, when I, I mean, it was a lot of money. I'm kidding, obviously. But I got a lot of money and I kept saying to myself, how can I write a book worth this much money? You know, and I kept looking at it, and um, it really scared the daylights out of me. And I kept saying, this, this book isn't worth this much. I mean, how do you know if you're writing, you know, a hundred or two or three hundred thousand dollar book? And so it was really scary for me. And, and also, everywhere you go, you know, your readers are always asking you, When's the next one? When's the next one? You know, and then they want you sometimes to write the same book you've already written, the one that they profess to love. And if you don't, you're worried if you're going to disappoint them. And then if you write something else different, you know, you 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 don't want to lose them as your audience. Um, and then there's there, there's my son, who's seven and a half, who asked me the other day, mommy. Um, are you going to write these books forever? <laughs> and, um, and I said, yes. And he's like, well, you know, why? <laughs> and unlike what PJ says, um, I actually love writing. I don't find it dreadful. I don't find it painful. It is one of the most exciting things that I do. It is the one thing that I look forward to in the morning other than my son. And... Um, it fuels me, and if people like what I write and read it, and as long as I don't, as long I'm, I think what I what I do appreciate about this is that people can't recognize you. I'd hate to be a movie star because people recognize your books um, and they read your words. And luckily, thank God, I'm not Alice Walker. You know. Um, you can still walk up and down the street and nobody knows who you are. And that anonymity I really, really do appreciate. And the only thing I think that really 
is starting to disturb me is, is, is the fact that you do have to say no when you, when you don't want to, because otherwise you'd never write or you'd never be at home. So, okay. those royalty checks do come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that concludes our questions. We're almost out of time, but I promise we take a couple of questions and we have someone that's been waiting patiently, so if you would. Yes. I didn't want to keep the mannequin. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, anyway, uh, I don't know how it happened. I mean, I really don't. I mean, that, you know, Norman Mailer was in it too, and, and so forth. I understood him. I didn't understand, Gor yeah, I didn't understand, I didn't know why I was there. But I, listen, I wasn't going to say no when they asked me. And they called me up, and um, that was it. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, I think actually we have run out of time. It's been a very interesting, I think a very stimulating panel discussion.